welcome to Side Alpha Leadership, a podcast where leaders can share their experiences and discuss what leadership means to them. I'm your host, David Polikoff. Hello, and welcome to this month's edition of Side Alpha Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, David Polikoff, and on the phone today with me again, uh, this is the second time on here, is is, uh, Frank Ritchie. Frank Ritchie and I have uh, known each other for quite a while. We uh, teach together at uh, Fire Engineering at FDIC. Uh, we, co-written, we co-wrote an article together uh, for a Fire Engineering magazine. Um, and uh, we also host uh, a radio show for Fire Engineering called Politics and Tactics, which basically kind of delves into the politics of the day or of the week or the month, uh, depending on where we're going with it. It's not always having to do with the fire service in general, but uh, after we finish with our, you know, 40 minutes or 30 minutes of politics, we go into uh, some tactics and strategy stuff that have to do with the fire service. So uh, without going any further, Frank, welcome back to the show. Dave, thanks for having me. It's always an honor to be on and uh, keep up the great work. Um, so the last time we talked, um, you were getting ready to retire. Uh, I know you said you retired back on uh, July 4th, again, uh, which you had said it was very fitting um, with uh, being able to retire on our nation's birthday. Um, so since then, July 4th of 2020, obviously, since then, uh, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to and, uh, and uh, what's going on in the future with you. Well, thanks, Dave. I'm still very active in fire engineering. Um, I have an article coming out with Jeff Chandler, who works for Connecticut DEEP on uh, special operations and an anhydrous ammonia call we went to in New Haven, where there were some really great lessons. It was like a really eye-opening call where at the end of it, we took to, we took home a lot of lessons to say, hey, you know, we really need to rethink some of these things. So that article should be out in March. I'm staying active with the radio show and the Google Hangouts. And recently, uh, this week, uh, national news broke. Uh, My new job is I work for a think tank. And one of the things that I cover is state and national labor issues. And we broke the story about the MDA scandal at the ISS. And that filled the boot. You know, I used to be one of those guys who used to run through the cars with my fire helmet on saying hundred percent of this money went to MDA. And, and we thought that, you know, they had administrative costs, but we had no idea that over a million dollars in some years, 1.4, 1.2 million dollars was going back to the IFF. So this was eye opening. That story just broke in real clear investigates and was published in newspapers around the country. So, you know, it's not to take away anything from the charity uh, MDA or fill the boot, but we need to fix this. And hopefully uh, the International Association of Firefighters will turn the page on this and stop taking money from a charity. So I've been working for a think tank and uh, staying active. And it's, it's kind of interesting to be in the academic world, especially being a firefighter. You know, I, I'm kind of like the only regular Joe there. My my boss graduated from Harvard and Princeton and was the law editor. She took over from for Barack Obama when he left as the, the law editor. So uh, it, it's, it's different. I'm trying to navigate in a different world, but uh, I think I enjoy it. So, you know, obviously, for those who don't know, you retired from the New Haven Fire Department and you live in that that area. So uh, I guess the question that, that I have to ask, actually, I know the answer, but uh, the question I have to ask is, have they been beating down your door at Harvard to come in and give a nice conservative view of politics and the world at large? <laughs> no, I don't think uh, Harvard will be banging down my door at any time. I testified at the state capitol today uh, by Zoom and some people weren't happy with my views, but, uh, you know, it's, we all got to learn how to communicate better. And I think that's something that you do a great job talking about. It's okay to, to agree to disagree. And it sounds cliche, but it's been lost in America. You, you have to be able to put out opposing views and have a conversation and let people decide. And I mean, that goes back to our, to our founding and Ben Franklin, who was, you know, essentially America's first firefighter in a sense is that, you know, he published a a paper called apologies for the printer where he was saying, you know, 
hey, let let both sides be heard, and then the truth will find a way out, and people can make their own decisions. We need to stop demonizing people, and we need to just start talking to them. Yeah, and, and that's going to segue extremely nicely in today's topic. Uh, we're going to talk about communications, effective communications, and, and then uh, we can also transition a little bit into some poor communications, which we see a lot of. And then uh, we're going to finish it up with some uh, decision-making, which is something that uh, we've been keyed on um, with our last month's um, radio show with Fire Engineer, and we talked a lot about decision-making, but let's talk a little bit about communication, and, uh, you know, for those that have been living under a rock, um, you don't have to go far to see where in America we've broken down with communications. It's, It's almost to the point where if you don't agree with me, then you're wrong, and you should be canceled, and we don't want to hear from you anymore, and, and we can't run a country that way, um, Let's take it down to 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 um, a smaller level. Let's let's take it into the to the business world or the fire service or even in the military. If we are not allowed to voice uh, concerns or opposing views or um, or just something that uh, maybe I don't have as much time on. Uh, the fire or in the fire department as my captain, and if I don't feel comfortable enough to ask a question or bring up a concern, I think that uh, we're going to take a, a horrible turn in the fire service. So let's hone in on that a little bit, Frank. And, and let's obviously we're not going to be able to solve the world problems or even America's problems, but I think um, the way we are in the fire service, we are a special group, and that's. Say, taking it lightly. I mean, we are a special breed of people and we have figured out how to communicate with each other uh, under life and death conditions. Um, what can we in the fire service show the country um, and how can we continue to move forward with good communications uh, in the fire service? Well, I think we got to recognize the issue first. So even in the fire service, while we have individuals that every day that are making life and death decisions on a radio. Um, if you look at most fire grounds in America, I think that you'll find that there's a lot of talking and not a lot of communicating. So I think we could all do better. And if you listen to some of the tapes where, where I was the chief there, you know, we could all do better. And I think that's the goal of the fire service because we're always making decisions based off imperfect information. And, you know, I say at work, if everybody's thinking the same, then nobody's thinking. So I'll take it back to a company officer. I used to always allow my crew to have a conversation with me. It might have been a quick conversation. And it was something that when I was driving truck four, which was the busiest truck in the city, I had a captain who, you know, we had a back and forth in New Haven is lined with trees and lined with wires. It's a very difficult and challenging place to drive aerial apparatus. And I drove a tiller truck for years. And when we would pull up, you know, that first initial decision to be made was, well, here, I'll back it up a little. The first decision to be made if you're driving anywhere in America is that when you hit the fire block, slow down. So that way the officer and driver can talk, find out where the hydrant is, what side of the street the wires are on and what side of the street the address is on. So just by slowing down a little bit when you hit the fire block, we'll make better decisions and for better communications. Now, as you're pulling up, we would have to make a determination. Are we going ground ladders or are we sticking the roof? So based off my experience, if the captain looked at me and said, hey, Frank, we're going ground ladders, if I could get it, and it happened many times. I'd look at him and say, Cap, I got it. And he'd say, okay, we're going. There was only one time where I said, I got it. And he said, no, I want to go ground ladders. Well, he's the boss. And I said, okay. And we went ground ladders. And then after he said, hey, show me that you can stick this. And I did. But the fact of the matter is, having that mutual respect, it's not challenging somebody's authority, but you know, everybody's a little bit different. So say if you're a stellar truck operator and you got promoted to lieutenant, when you pull up, it might be something that you could easily stick. But for a newer person, 
they may not have that level of experience yet. They may want to go growl ladders, even if you think you could walk them in and stick it. So I think you got to be able to have that conversation back and forth. And it goes for even when I was an engine boss. If you're stretching in and you're, if you're making a decision, you want your people to be able to say real quick, hey, this is what I got. Or, hey, did you see the smoke over there? Or did you see this? You want to be able to have that back and forth. So to tell you a quick story, when I became a lieutenant, I initially got assigned to the truck that I worked on for years. It was great. And I knew the streets. I knew the crew. And then lo and behold, my first transfer was to a completely different side of the city that I never worked on. And I was blessed. I got a driver that knew every house, every hydrant. The guy was unbelievable. I'd be putting on my pants, my bunker gear, and he'd be telling me whether we're going to take the hydrant going in or whether we're going to reverse. And for you know the years that I was with him, I only told him ironically once that, no, we're going to do it a different way. And it turned out it was a it was a major gas line on Quinnipiac Avenue that was uh, broken, and he he wanted to take it going in. And I said said no, we got a gas line. We're gonna we're gonna back down. And we're gonna reverse out. And but I gave him that respect, and you know he made me look good so many times because I knew his expertise. And if he said no, Frank, I want to I'm going to hit the extra block for whatever reason. You know, I defer to him and he made me look great. And I think that that's a lot of the communication. If you're able to talk to each other, that's how you build trust. So in any organization, you got to be able to have frank conversations. And again, it goes back to that captain. The one time where I said I got it, he said no. I didn't question that at all because then that would have been insubordinate. But it's okay to have that initial conversation. So if your personnel today, are afraid to give you a little piece of information that you're missing or to say what they're comfortable with, you're failing to communicate and you're failing as an officer because your personnel are going to either take care of you and make you look like a hero or you're going to end up being, you're going to diminish your own command. Yeah, I think it's important that uh, you have to have that mutual respect um, you have to respect your people. Just because you're the captain in the station doesn't mean that you can look down on your people. Um, and the same thing as a battalion chief. Just because I'm the battalion chief does not mean that I look down on my captains because I outrank you, therefore I know more. Um, I had a captain when I was a lieutenant. He used to tell me, and I take this uh, I take this with me from the day he told me until the day I retire and move forward uh, with the rest of my life is never walk into a room thinking you're the smartest person in the room just because you have more jewelry on your collar and on your your badge and whatnot because that's you're setting yourself up for many things. First of all, there's always somebody smarter in the room. Not only that, you are putting an air about you that your ego is way bigger and you don't view the people that you work with as being someone that is... Uh, that you can trust or that you can take information from. Um, so like you said, Frank, if if your people are afraid uh, to say something to you, uh, then, then, you know, you're doing it wrong. Uh, for lack of a better word, you are not uh, instilling the trust in your people. And once you get that trust um, from your shift or from your battalion, they trust you that you're going to lead them correctly. You're going to make sure that they don't get hurt. And then you trust them that they're going to give you the best information they can. And they're going to work hard for you because they know that you are working hard for them. Um, and that goes across not just on the fire ground, but also, you know, when we talk about management that's above the rank of battalion chief may come down and have an issue with your guys. Um, you should be that umbrella, even if your guys are wrong. You should be that umbrella to take the brunt of whatever's going on and say you'll handle it, but it doesn't go past you. What do you say about that, Frank? No, I think that's that's vitally important. We had a, a lieutenant on the job, Robbie Celentano, and he was just, it, you know, his his personality was higher than his rank, and you couldn't talk to any of his guys without going through him. And he kind of, we used him as kind of a mentor as we were coming up through the ranks is that you always got to protect your personnel. 
and it's okay to eat it. If you're if your guys and girls make a mistake, own it. It's okay to own a mistake. As I said, you're all going to do better. If you look at most of the articles I've written in fire engineering or a large amount of my slides, if I make a mistake, I try to learn from it. I share it, and I usually write an article or do a PowerPoint about it. You know, there's there's nobody out there that's that's perfect. One of the one of the biggest problems that I see in communication is the officer out there that is just quiet, where they don't ever want to say anything. They want to like stand back, be the officer that it's okay to make a mistake. If I was leading the drill or going to a drill at the training academy as a company officer, I'd be the first one to volunteer to go and do whatever the task was. It's okay to let your people see that you're human, but they're going to work that much harder for you. So, but yes, you've got to stick up for your people. And if they make a mistake, if you're the boss, it's your mistake too. You know, why did they make it? Uh, what was their thought process is, is, for, is the first question, you know, you know, what happened, but what was their thought process? And it, was this a training issue? You know, were they unaware, unable or unwilling? What, what's the, to quote Frank Bacuso's uh, promotional guide there, you know, why did the mistake happen? And is it your fault? Is it something that you should have trained them? I, I remember I used to blow my mind when I first got to the training division, um, the training division, you know, we used to, you know, kind of say, oh, this guy messed up this, this guy messed up this. And I would sit at the table with my coffee and say, yeah, his training must have sucked. (laughs) 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 You know, sometimes you need to look in and say, hey, we need to do a better job of uh, reaching this person to get them to the next, to the next level, because everybody out there has value on the fire ground. We we just got to find it in that person and bring it out of them. Yeah. that goes with good communication. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, one of the things that uh, that I try to uh, bring out in my people is that you have a voice, and I, I want to hear your voice. Um, I try to give my guys the space to you know kind of shine, let them shine, and, and uh, when they do something right, let the light be on them. To that, that that they did this project, they put this together, and uh, you know, let them get the credit just because they're your people. And, and I think you said it once before, Frank. If something happened and it was bad, it's your fault. If something happened and it was good, it's all them. Let them take the credit for it because that's going to encourage them to continue to move forward and be able to. Um, you know, make decisions, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and, uh, you know, hopefully kind of strengthen their morale, also strengthen their confidence a little bit. Um, when we talk about, you know, communicating, uh, one of the things that I did when I took over uh, the shift that's been, it's coming up on about on a year now, uh, when I took over C-Shift in my, uh, my battalion, was I put out within, I think it was about three weeks, and I put together my expectations of what I expect from my officers. Um, and it was probably about three pages, but it was stuff that you would normally do. Like, I expect you to get out the door fast. I expect you to wear your gear, protect your people, train your people, um, perform as, as flawlessly as possible on the fire ground. If we make mistakes, let's learn from it. You know, all those things. But what that did, in my opinion, is that it front-loaded my expectations, but it communicated to them that we're all human, we're all in this together. And had I not given them these expectations and they did something that went against something that I wanted done, well, at the end of the day, who do I have to blame? They didn't know what I expected of them because I didn't tell them. What's your opinion on that? I think that you're 100% right, but there are some times where you have to throttle it back just a little. They, that's the key to leadership is for individuals to know your expectations without a doubt. Um, but I always used to say that you don't have to change the world in a day, but you have to work for change every day. So um, to give you an example, you come to a new shift, you're a new boss, you're a lieutenant, but there's a captain there. You just can't go in there and say, these are my expectations on 100%. There's only so much that you can control. And in situations like that, 
you know, wait a month or two and kind of see how the shift operates under the other leader and where you can put your expectations forward if you're not the boss there is in the training environment when you do the training class or when you're out on a call with just your company. And that's kind of how you lead when you're in a a tough position. And that's how you also win people over. But yeah, you definitely have to make your expectations clear. I, and I know exactly what you're saying, but I don't want somebody to misunderstand it. And you get a new Lieutenant, new captain, new battalion chief. They walk in the first day and they throw down the paper and say, Hey, this is my list of expectations. That may work in some departments, but I can tell you in in the city that I worked in, they would eat you alive if you did that. And any officer that I've seen do that, they got destroyed. So if you have a common respect with your personnel, I mean, I've talked to people who work for you, Dave. They hold you in very high esteem. So nobody's going to buffalo me. You know, they actually tell me what they think of you. And they do hold you in high esteem. So you should be, you should be proud of that fact. So yes, you want to set your expectations because you want your people to succeed. But if you're new, you don't want to just come in there and say on the first day, these are the 30 things I expect from you. And it better be this way, kind of work it in and use training as a way to communicate that vision to get buy-in because you've got to get buy-in. We just had a, I won't say what their rank was, but I'll say he was a chief officer and he didn't get, he had some great ideas, but he didn't get buy-in from the other chiefs. And it really hurt him because he was a great, he was a great guy. And I think that how far he advanced things, he would have carried the ball even further if he just slowed down just a little bit and got everybody on the team. Kind of like what you're talking about is build the people around you give them credit where credit's deserved, take some blame when you need to take some blame, but, but don't do things too quick. Does that yeah. make any sense? Yeah, it makes 100% sense. And, and you know, I'm looking at it, I guess, you know, from my eyes, you know, with 30-some years on the job, you know, most people know me. And it's funny because people tell me what they think of me also, and they don't ever hold back. So uh, some of it's good. Some of it is, you know, it's honest. And, and that's good constructive criticism. But I find that people like to tell me what they think of me. Um, so whatever. But uh, Dave, no, no, Dave, Dave, no, I know what you're talking about, you know. Exactly. You got a great reputation. And <laughs> let me give you one more tip for our new officers out there. And I learned this from one of my best friends is a battalion chief in Wallingford, Connecticut, which is, I live here. It's a very small town. It's not a city. And something that he did that I kind of borrowed, like, you know, like Thomas Edison said, borrowing brilliance. That's right. He said <laughs> that he calls his personnel into his office once a year. And he says, hey, tell me uh, two things that you don't like about me and tell me three things that you do like about working for me. And I was like, do people actually talk to you? And he's like, he's like, yeah. And he goes, yeah, I use that opportunity, too, to update my file about how many kids they have, where they live, just the personal stuff. God forbid anybody was ever hurt and he goes it's a way to build a relationship so it's like i thought that was interesting so when i became a new boss i i tried that so i called everybody in and i said listen i want two things that you don't like about the shift and three and the most popular question i got out of the whole thing was well wait why are we telling you three good things and two bad things i said well everybody has a little bit of an ego i don't want to be depressed at the end of the, the shift <laughs> right. I a horrible job <laughs> Said I gotta engineer this a little bit so that I can feel good about myself. I'm, I'm trying to grow as a boss. Exactly. And so what happened was uh, a bunch of people came in and one at a time and didn't tell me anything. Like literally told me nothing. Where they're like, "Oh yeah, everything's great." Asked about their family, their parents, their kids, everything. You know, I took notes and I was like, "Yeah, you know, that didn't work out that well." And then the last person that came in was like, "Here are the two things I don't like." And here are the three things that I like. And one of the things that he said was something that I didn't realize. And just because he said it, I changed it. So what I would do is, so we would always put the overtime officer on the truck when I was a lieutenant. It was like a courtesy thing. So if overtime came in, the officer came on the truck. So when I started out, I was riding the engine. The 
busy engine. They were up all, we were up all night long going to medicals. I mean, it's, it's crazy where I used to work in tent area in Fairhaven. So what I would used to do is if we got a detail firefighter or a detail overtime firefighter, I would put them on the truck. And I always thought in my mind, I want to keep my crew together. I want my own personnel on the pipe. I want my, we have four and everything, um, file and the rescue. I want my own personnel on the hydrant. It's a source of pride. Plus, I want to be with my guys and girls, you know, that shift camaraderie. But what I didn't know was there was an undercurrent on the shift where the guys were saying, we're getting killed on medicals. We get a chance to finally get on the truck. And then somebody who comes in who hasn't made their bones, may not have a lot of seniority, or may not have the greatest reputation in the fire uh, as a firefighter, and the officer is punishing us who works our ass off for Frank as a boss. And I was blown away because I had no idea. And I said, oh, my God, my buddy Chris was so right. And I said, you know, I immediately put a slide in my fire engineer presentation that sometimes when you're a boss, you got to punish yourself. So I would put the person with me and put them on the hydrant from now on. And I give my, my guys or girls a break, you know, and say, hey, you got an overtime person, put my own personnel on the truck. So even though it's a busy truck, they, you know, they still weren't going to 10 medicals that night. And, you know, it was like a, a bonus for them. So, again, it's about communication because here I thought I knew everything that was going on on my shift. And I even went the extra, extra mile. I really relied on my driver, the senior personnel, to kind of let me know what was going on. And that really effectively worked for me. You know, I used to say they run the shift. If I got to get involved in the firehouse, you're going to have a big problem. And it worked out really well for me. But this was something that I missed. And by doing that thing once a year, I picked up on something and I completely changed. And I think it helped the shift. So sometimes you got to take a look at yourself. And we have our own internal blind spots. So by allowing your personnel to communicate their true feelings, um, you may pick up something that you had no clue was going on. Yeah, and, and because that guy gave you that little tidbit of information and then he saw you pivoted and changed, hopefully that I'm, I'm almost certain that the rest of the shift saw that and says, hey, you know what, I can actually talk to Frank and he'll listen and uh, we can make some effective change. So I'm, I'm sure you saw uh, that paid dividends, knowing that that guy could come in and, and speak, no pun intended, frankly, with you, and and you would actually listen and make that change. So that had to go, that had to make huge inroads with the rest of your shift. Yeah, I think, well, people think that if you, if you make mistakes, you lose credibility. No, if you make a mistake and you don't own up to the mistake or you don't change, it's, it, you know, if you're going to be a leader, it's very clear that, you know, I'll go back to Ronald Reagan. Why was he so successful? He projected a clear set of standards and values. Okay. So as being a boss, it's important that you project a clear set of standards and values. And a lot of that comes down to being consistent. But if you get new information to where you're going to move and you can explain your thought process on why you pivoted off a position that you had based off new information, it actually builds your credibility as a leader, and it also helps the people below you make better decisions because they're not afraid to make a decision. They know that you're going to ask them what their thought process was and kind of work work through it. And people need to understand that, that effective communication also is the other part of that is effective listening. So you're just not doing the talking, but you're also listening. And I tell people, you know, my, my line officers, uh, you need to be doing the, the, the 98-2 rule, you know, listen 98% of the time to your people and talk 2% of the time. Because when you're hearing your people, you're going to hear maybe underlying issues. You're going to hear things that are brewing. Um, you may hear things that are going on on the other shifts that are affecting your shift. Um, if you're not listening, uh, then you're going to be missing some stuff. And one of the things that I wanted to key in on that you had said when you talked about communications, having that clear line of communication um, from the fire chief on down, you know, as a fire chief of an organization, whether it's career or volunteer, you have to communicate your vision for the fire service. If you don't tell people the direction that you want to go and what your aspirations are for the next three months 
uh, nine months, 12 months, five years, whatever, if you don't communicate that plan, whether it be verbalized or in writing or in video, um, your people are going to be left out in the wind guessing. And, and when there is a communication vacuum, firemen will fill in with their own stuff. Um, so from the fire chief to the operations chief to you know the, the battalion chief to the captain, lieutenant, all the way down, there has to be this clear line of communication of where we're going, what we're doing. And uh, one of the things that I also wanted to touch on that you talked about being that new lieutenant, you know, these, these guys that are getting promoted from firefighter or technician to lieutenant. Yeah, you can't come into the firehouse, uh, pound your fist on the desk and say, you know, I'm the lieutenant now and here's what I expect you guys to do. You need to know your audience. If you're walking into a shift of, of the, the, uh, the average uh, seniority of the person in there is 20 plus years you're not going to change these people on a dime, nor you may not have to. So you have to feel out the shift. As these new officers, you got to feel out the shift. You have to allow them to feel you out. And then you said something that was key, Frank, that, that uh, we hold near and dear to our heart, being instructors and things like that, is that we can use training to kind of drive our expectations, showing uh, the crew that, Here's how, uh, you know, we're going to go out and we're going to pull some lines and I want to make sure that, you know, we're the best in, in, in the department or in the city, or in the battalion. Um, and I'm also going to put this line on my shoulder and I'm going to train with you guys because it's not beneath me. I'm going to do everything you're going to do. And as you build that credibility, then you can start to eke in some of your expectations as you go forward. Maybe more so of bouncing them off like, hey guys, what do you think about carrying the eight pound axe and the Halligan bar and the hydram all in the same compartment. Um, and that way, when that guy comes off of the irons, he's got everything right there. And not only that, will improve our speed. We can get these doors open because you guys are phenomenal with uh, forcible entry or what have you. Or maybe we can pack the line this way, wrap the nozzle, not wrap the nozzle. What do you guys think? You start to get that credibility and then you'll start to get that buy-in. Um, th that's kind of the direction I'm talking about when it comes to expectations. Is that where you were going with that, Frank? Absolutely. And I tell you a funny story. So remember I said that I came from a different side of the city and I didn't know a lot of the people that I, that I was now their boss of. So it was at the time that that phone app came out that you could call somebody and it would show up on the phone that it was somebody else on the phone. Right. So somebody, you know, being a firefighter, they called one of the senior guys there, Ronnie, I think it was. And on the phone, because I was a union rep, a lot of people had my number. And it showed, you know, Frank Ritchie was calling them and they went on. I never found out who did it, but they went on that, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm on the advisory board of fire engineering. When I get there, we're going to start training. So they just kept calling them, making it like that. When I came there, all we were going to do is train all day long. So when I got there, some people were a little apprehensive of like, what is wrong with this guy? Why is he calling somebody on the phone? firefighters being firefighters. But when I got there, I said, all right, listen, I want one, you guys, this is one of the most experienced shifts in the city. I go, I want one hour a day with you. So, and everybody's like looking at me like, what? It's like, yeah, no, it's what I want. One hour a day. And when I do an evolution, I'm going to participate. We're going to do the evolution. Then we're going to critique it. And then you can go about doing your, your thing. And everybody was like blown away. And the funny thing was when it came to training, is that after like four months of being consistent of doing an hour a day, when I had a union issue and I got stuck on the phone, I would have a senior guy who's got like 30 years on the job come in and be like, hey, Lou, are we going to do a drill today? And I'd be <laughs> like, who are you? So, so if you like, you kind of build habits into people and you get people to buy into the situation, you, you don't need to take that crew out there and do, do six hours of, laying lines if you got an experienced crew but take them out and even if you got 20 years on the job it may you might not have thrown the 40-foot ladder in a year two years three years you know say hey we're gonna go we're gonna go down to the to the vacant building we're gonna throw ladders for an hour and if you're doing it with them you'll earn their respect and guess what you'll get better as a boss yourself but your personnel will get better too because even if you got 25 30 years on the job everybody gets rusty. Almost everything we do are perishable skills. And that's where you can really work on your communication. Because if you communicate a lot in training, 
you don't have to communicate at the fire. So if I pulled up as an engine boss, I never had to tell my crew what line to pull. They knew through training that if it was a commercial structure, if it was a bodega, anything other than a house, I wanted a two and a half. And if it was a house, I wanted an inch and three quarter. It was that simple. I didn't have to get off the piece and say, this is the line I want. I would get off the piece and I'd be looking at the building, trying to make decisions, trying to size up the building. And I knew what line was coming. And yet, to this day, you can go to fire make decisions so that when they become officers, they can make decisions too. And how you give those orders without giving those orders is setting those expectations, just like you said, in training. This is what I expect. I'll take this back to BCC. That was at BCC Rescue Squad uh, inside the Beltway there, um, which was a great experience for me. Uh, when I was a unit officer and got the opportunity to ride to rescue, Whoever was driving, I always said, hey, if we get an extrication, I'm going to come up with plan A, and you're going to set up the tools because that's what the driver usually does, make sure everything's all squared away, but you're responsible for plan B. So I was already covering my blind spot. I knew that as I'm working on plan A, that driver who's basically handling logistics on the rescue, they're already thinking, okay, if I fail, this is what I got, this is what I'm bringing to the table. So again, it comes back to communication. And it comes back to training, and we practiced that when we were caught in, in the in the yard at, at BCC. One of the other things, um, we lost a friend, Scott Hammond, passed away, DC cop, Rockville chief. I lived in a firehouse, and one of the things about leadership and communication that I got out of living at a firehouse is most people go through their career linear. You get your probationary firefighter, you become a, you work for this boss. And you get transferred, but years go by and you kind of like go up the career ladder. The nice thing about living in a firehouse is I got to work under different career lieutenants and different uh, volunteer lieutenants all at the same time. So in the same week, you have A shift, B shift, C shift. So you really got to see different personality styles, different leadership styles, what worked and what didn't work. And that really, I think that the foundation that I got at the Rockville Volunteer Fire Department being a living was what really laid the foundation for success as a company officer in the city of New Haven. Yeah, and and uh, you know one of the things that that uh, briefly talk talk about Scott. You know, again we lost Scott. Um, he was uh, a good friend. Uh, he was a good leader and a good mentor. And uh, I know he he had uh, many of the guys that have been on this podcast. You know, knew Scott as well. So. Um, he uh, he definitely changed and turned Rockville around, you know, as that volunteer chief for the better. Um, he was the kind of guy that people could actually go and sit down and talk to. And they could even say, you know, I don't like this about you. And it would just roll off of him and, and you know, he would make the subtle changes. So, you know, it's a huge loss for uh, for Montgomery County and for Rockville and, and, and you know, as a friend as well. Um so I want to pivot a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about decision-making. And I think that this goes hand-in-hand hand with communication because having good communication allows you to make better decisions. Um, the decisions that we make on the fire ground, especially within the first few minutes, whether you are a, uh, a line officer or you're the, the battalion chief coming in to take command, is you're doing your best to make sound decisions based on just a, a, a fraction of the information that's out there. You know, when you roll it up, you're doing a quick size up, um, thinking that this is what you have and you're making decisions based on that. But you have to have that ability to change on the fly. Um, one of the things that we t that uh, I want to talk about is, is how do we make our people stronger in order to make decisions? I've, I've asked people in the past before, you know, why is it that you think that uh, – new officers are afraid to make decisions or why aren't they making decisions? And, and uh, the number one answer was always, well, they're afraid to make decisions because they think they're going to get in trouble. You know, I always, I always follow that, that, that comment up with, well, who's getting in trouble? Name somebody who's gotten in trouble for making a decision that didn't involve, you know, killing or hurting somebody and they can't even come up with one. So that whole afraid you're going to get in trouble is a farce. Um, one of the things that we talked about was, you know, protecting your people 
when they do something wrong. So you take as as a leader or as the battalion chief or as the line officer, you're going to take the brunt of that uh um, the ire that's coming from your boss uh, because they don't like a particular decision or something that happened on your shift. I think when your people see that, that you're taking that heat and then you turn around and say, okay, walk me through what you did and let's make it a teachable moment. And I think that's the key. Instead of having the knee-jerk reaction of somebody makes a bad decision and you fly off the handle, you're going to make them gun-shy from making a, a decision in the future. Um but if you make it a teachable moment, I think that they learn and they move from it. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, give me some of your thoughts on decision-making on the firefighter, line officer, and then moving into uh, command officers. All right, so right off the bat, everybody, need, and I think it was Stanley McChrystal who said it, he was a general, is that your people need to know that they can fail without being a failure. So if the person's trying to do a good job and just makes a bad decision, they need to know that it's okay to fail. And how you do that as a company officer is when you're doing those critiques or tailboard reviews is take responsibility for yourself. You'd be surprised the power of the word that I own. I remember driving truck four on Chapel Street. It was a job, small job. And I was at a place for some reason. I, I don't even remember what the, the circumstances were, but, but I messed up. It, it was a mistake I made. I recovered from it but I messed up. And when the battalion chief came over and asked me about it, I said, I own it. I blew it. And I think we went, I think I got to the roof by the fire escape. And uh, it's amazing the power of the words. I own it. With no excuse. You don't need to say anything else. I own it. I know what I did wrong. You know, this is what I'll do better differently. It kind of takes the, the air out of the room, but you got to start building your personnel up from the beginning. So the firefighter, you know, if you're going to be a chief and you're going to get all 13 things of a 13 point size up plus terrain, um, you got to build up somewhere. You don't start off with a 13 point size up. You got to build a foundation. So I would tell my firefighters, okay, what's the building? I want to know as a, as a firefighter, when you're pulling that line off, what's the building instruction? What's the layout of the building based off the windows? Where's the fire? Where's the fire going? You know, you want to start, having them ask themselves questions in their minds of what's going on. I remember coming out of the academy, uh, being an instructor in the academy, going to a house fire, grabbing somebody that's in there pulling ceilings and say, okay, tell me something about the house. And they're like, what? Yeah. Ask your personnel. Next fire you go to. Take one of the new people when they're pulling ceilings or they're putting a tarp over something and say, hey, tell me something about the house. What they can usually tell you is, like if there was two windows with fire blowing out or two windows with smoke, but they're not even looking at the whole building. They're getting fixated on what's moving and what they view as a threat. So you got to start instilling in your personnel that they got to kind of move their eyes around when they're looking at the building. Okay. I got two windows of fire here, but what's the layout? Where's the living room? And if they kind of ask themselves questions when they're sizing up the building, what's the building construction, they'll hit all those points. And same thing for an officer. Everybody says that when the officer makes a radio report, it's for the companies coming in to know what they have. I, I always say, no, I think that the radio report is just as much for that first few officer, because if they're hitting crucial things in that size of report, their mind's moving and they're not getting fixated on one or two things. They're actually thinking about what the building instruction is, what the layout is, where the fire and all other auxiliary appliances and all those things. And then if you build up upon that, when you're a chief officer, you're going to hit more of those things. So I, I think that's, that's really, really good. We have a policy, New Haven, well, I should, I'm retired now, but New Haven had a policy that, you know, I can't even remember it right now, but it's, it's, whatever your size up is. And if it's any of those key points are missed, the battalion chief is to then state those things when they arrive on scene, because you miss them and it's okay to miss them because we all miss things, but you want to build up decision-making incrementally. And you want to let people know that they can fail without being a failure. You want to build them up and you'll get the most out of the people that work for you. And if you're a senior chief with 30 years on the job, and there's another battalion chief there who's running the fire. Stay the hell out of it. If, if the fire's not 
going crazy and, you know, expanding exponentially. And you got an extra two houses on fire. I mean, even had three houses on fire today. You don't need to take command from that person. You know, maybe declare on the radio that you're a senior advisor and stay, and don't be given orders. You know, if you're staying out of it and you're letting somebody run the fire, well, then let them run the fire. And you can talk to them, but don't over-talk them on the radio and don't be telling other people commands when you're there in an advisory role because now you're undermining the person that you're trying to help and what you're doing is you're diminishing your own command. So if you're not going to take command, now here's the thing. If you declare senior advisor and the situation's escalating, you could always take command, but you could take this as an opportunity to kind of be a crutch for the person to build that person and you have that conversation. It goes a long way. You'll actually be able to communicate better with them and you'll earn that person's respect and then you give them experience. I've seen a lot of chiefs over the years, not only in New Haven, everywhere. They come on scene, they immediately take command from the battalion chief that's doing a good job. I, I think that's that's a mistake. What's your opinion on that, Dave? Yeah, I agree. It's one of the things that we talked about, um, you know, uh, last a week and a half ago when we talked about some of this decision-making stuff is, is – um, I think it's crazy that you have chiefs that respond on everything. Battalion chief, even even a battalion chief, you know, one of the neighboring jurisdictions, they get a chief on like an odor of smoke, an odor of gas. You know, it's it's an automatic dispatch. And, you know, my question is, well, when does your people ever get a chance to make a decision uh, when they're running with more than just one company, you know, other than running a medical local and deciding what hospital they should go to? Um, I, th- I think that, uh, you know, when you have the chief respond on everything and take that command and set up his initial command, you never allow your people to make a decision, you know, right or wrong. I mean, you have to make some bad decisions in order to figure out what the good ones are. Um, we're fortunate in my county that, uh, you know, we're dispatched on limited stuff, uh, full assignments, um, something that may be out of the order, like a complex incident or something like that. But other than that, when my guys go out the door for an order of smoke, I'm not running that call with them. And even if I'm closer and I roll up on the scene, I just go to the scene you know, just to make sure that you know nothing's on fire. They'll come in, they'll lay their lines, they'll take their tactical command, and they'll go in and do their thing, and I'll just watch them work. Um, I, I, I don't think that there's any benefit to that chief running the call and then taking command on everything. Um, obviously, if again, if it's a complex incident, you know the expectation is, is that the chief comes in, he assumes the command from whoever has had the initial command, be it a lieutenant or captain, so that line officer can continue to work with their crew. But if you have a battalion chief that's on the scene who's running a fire, even if it goes to a second alarm, and, and our, your, your, uh, your deputy chief or your duty chief or whatever arrives on the scene, that person should at least come to the car with some information for you. Like, I just did a circle check. Uh, this is what's going on on the Charlie side. Um, I can write your units down for you. Hey, do you need anything from me? Don't just get in the car and say, okay, I'm here now. I got it. You know, especially if things are going well. And, and even if things are kind of going sideways a little bit, and you're that senior chief, like you said, be that mentor. Coach them through, as long as they're not, you know, making life and death decisions uh, negative, making it a negative impact, coach them through and allow them to make decisions and, and kind of lead them in the right direction. And, and again, go back to using it as a teaching moment. Um, and you're going to boost the confidence up in that guy that is, um, that was struggling, but now you're kind of setting them up, uh, you know, as you're, you're, you're letting them lean up against you a little bit and they can, Continue to, to to work this uh, this incident, and then come out with a, with a uh, with a, a good some good decisions, and then actually put the fire out. It's going to boost that guy's confidence, so in the future he's going to feel better about it. Um, one of the things that I do when we have a, a decent fire, we have a hot wash. One of the first things that I do is point out some of the things that I did wrong, and then how I'm going to approve. In the future, you know, because I'm not perfect. There's not one fire that I've ever ran that things went flawlessly. So showing the guys that, hey, even I make mistakes and I'm owning this mistake and this is what I'm going to do in the future um, to make sure that it doesn't happen again shows those guys that I'm human 
and that I'm not perfect and that it's okay to make mistakes. So that's kind of my take on that whole, you know, how are we allowing our people to make decisions? Well, you just, you, the chief can't be on the scene of every call. You're going to have to allow these guys, give them a little bit of rope so they can go out and do their own thing and figure things out as they move forward and be there to mentor and help them if they need it. I think you're hundred percent right. And you know, you always, you know, sometimes a mistake is made and you're not going to be able to completely change what happened, but you can help the situation. I'll give you a quick example. So I went to a fire and uh, the crew was, I was responding to the training school as a department's drill master. So I got assigned a division as I'm walking by a crew was sent to put a ladder to the roof and they grabbed the ground ladder that was too short. So as they put it up, it wasn't making it to the roof. So they were going to leave it on the building where it wouldn't have been accomplishing anything. And it would have been looking blatant that they didn't make it to the roof. So as I walked by it, lieutenant, I go, put it to a window and go get a 35. <laughs> and that lieutenant loves me to this day because <laughs> I, I, I didn't have to scold them. I didn't yell at them. I didn't. I just said, put it through a window. Now, okay, now you got another ladder through a window. So, you know, just talking and building up the people around you. You don't have to. You don't have to be that person. You could. You could just kind of, like you said, even if it's going sideways, it can. Uh, Judson Avenue. I responded from home when I was at the training division, and they needed. It was going good. Two and a half wood. Two exposures, and one exposure was exposed and you could tell it was in the knee wall and nobody was in the exposure. I didn't need to get on the radio or anything. I stood next to the battalion chief. I leaned into him and said, Hey chief, you think we should get somebody in that exposure? He goes, Oh yeah. So sometimes just triggering somebody's mind goes a, goes a long way. You don't need to say it on the radio. If you could just talk to the person and fix the issue, it's not about calling out people who do things wrong. Cause sometimes you'll hear people call things out that are already done maybe, that isn't going to have an impact on, uh, you know, you get an engine company that charges the bed. Uh, you don't need to yell it over the radio. Uh, I think they know they charged the bed and there was a problem. Help them fix it. Get somebody to fix the problem. So yeah. again, that goes to communication. Yeah. And unfortunately we do have officers that are out there that feel that when they berate somebody, it makes them feel better. And, and those people, you know, those are the people that we need to start weeding out of the fire service because those days, in my opinion, are over. You know, like you said, if somebody charges their hose bed, I'm pretty sure that driver know he charged the hose bed. He already <laughs> feels like shit that he did it anyway. So the last thing you need to do is get on the radio and, and be Captain Obvious and, and to call him out so you can feel better about it. You know, the better thing is like, hey, uh, what can I do real quick to, to help you uh, get this taken care of? Or let's disconnect this real quick and I'll get another line or whatever. Help them solve the problem, and then that's going to be that teachable moment. That's going to be like, hey, you know what? That chief was pretty cool. He hooked me up. You know, he didn't. He could have yelled at me, but you know, he could have just said, "What are you doing?" You know, type of thing. Recognize that I knew that I had an issue, and he helped me fix it. Um, but yeah, like you said, there's no reason to call on the radio and tell somebody, "Hey, you need to get somebody in that exposure." We got fire in the knee walls. You know, it may have already happened. It could have been face to face communication. Or it could have been just leaning in, like you said, hey, Chief, uh, looks like we got some extension there. You may, may want to think about getting somebody over there. It's like, oh, yeah, geez, I wasn't even looking over there. I had a, um, a fire that I ran um, a few years back, and uh, it came out as an auto fire next to the house. So what it ended up being was a basement fire, and the smoke was coming out around a vehicle. So it looked like the car was on fire, and we actually had a pretty good fire in the basement. Um the call came out with to the rear of this yard, so I put the car around the back of the yard just so I could see what the guys were doing. Lo and behold, they had a fire. So a lot of the communications that I did was face-to-face. -face. Uh, rolled the window down, told the lieutenant, you know, hey, you know, you're going to be basement division. You're going to have these guys. Make sure that you're checking here. Um, you know, if it's balloon frame construction, make sure we get some people up on the upper floor. So a lot of it was done face-to-face. -face. I actually had one of the division chiefs call me up and go, that was terrible. You didn't inject any um, objectives to your guys. You just kind of, it almost sounded like they were freelancing and they were doing whatever they want. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And, and it was like, 
a lot of the things that I did was face-to-face communication, and the beauty of that whole call was I had it on videotape, and uh, I played the videotape back for him, and the guy had nothing. But it could have been easy to just say, hey, man, I didn't hear anything on the radio. What was going on with that call? It could have been as simple as that. As a lot of it was face-to-face communications. And Frank, you and I know, what's the best type of communication on the fireground? Face-to-face, eye contact. This is what I need you to do. You got it? Yep, I'm going to get a line to the second floor. And then you're off and doing your thing. Now it's not misunderstood. Um, but again, you know, you have these people that have these egos that feel that they need to beat you down so they can build themselves up. And, and again, those are the people that they just, they have to get out of the fire service. You, you see it in the business world um, where you have people that are management that feel that they have to beat down the people underneath of them so they look good in front of the shareholders or I run a tight ship and this is how I do it and people fear me. And if your people fear you, again, like I said earlier, you're doing it wrong. What do you say? Um, I think you're 100% right. And I just want to put out a word of caution for the face-to-face. Face-to-face is absolutely the best way of communicating. A computer or a tablet has never put out a fire. It always comes down to your personnel. Um, as long as everything's going right. If things are going different or going sideways, the face-to-face communication is, especially with like a division chief, is always key. But then you may want to put that face-to-face conversation over the radio. Let me give you an example. Um, You said, hey, get a line to the second floor. That doesn't need to be put out on the radio because that's a normal thing that should be happening. Just like if it's balloon frame construction, somebody should be checking the attic and the basement. It's almost like a normal normal thing. But, for example, you have somebody come up to you face-to-face as a chief and they say, hey – since you're 15, I stretch short, and now that line's not going to the second floor or not backing up the other company, then while that face-to-face communication is great between two individuals, as a chief, you want to get on the radio real quick and just say, um, there's going to be a delay in getting a line to the second floor. We're stretching now. You're not calling out engine 15, but you're letting the other companies that may be searching on the rescue or the truck without a line to know that there's a delay in getting that line to them and that you're fixing the problem. So, you know, it's just like anything in fire service. There's no 100% rules. So I just want to make sure that nobody takes everything that we say for gospel. And one of the other things that's important on face-to-face is if you're having a face-to-face communication and you're assigning, say you're the deputy chief and you're taking over for the battalion chief and you're going to make the battalion chief a division chief, if that deputy chief doesn't say over the radio where you're going as a division chief and who's reporting to you, then as an individual who gets that assignment, you should say that over the radio yourself. Even though you had the face-to-face, you should be able to say, Car 81 is going to be division two. These are the companies that are reporting to me. And that way it's known over the radio so other people know. But I, I completely agree. If everything's going going right and going by the way the SOPs go, face-to-face and no need to repeat it over the radio. But if something's going sideways or a little different, it's okay to put a face-to-face communication over the radio. And if you assign a chief a division, whoever assigns a division should announce it over the radio and what companies are reporting to them because it makes – everybody accountable on the fire ground. And the other thing that I think that's important for decision-making and for just general fire ground kind of housekeeping is that individuals on the fire ground and officers need to understand that there's only certain places you can be on the fire ground. You can be assigned, you could be at the command post, you could be in rehab, you can be in tactical reserve, but you can't just be like cats running around. So if you come out of the fire, you should report to the command post. You shouldn't just come out of the fire and I always defer to your SOPs, but you shouldn't, if you're an engine company and you get relieved on the inside, you shouldn't just come out and go grab bottles. You should uh, real quick check in with the command post. My company's par. We're going to change bottles. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, I agree. And uh, that that communication is, yes, I'm coming out, um, letting the incident commander know that you're coming out. And then, you know, this is what I'm going to do. The incident commander might say, hey, okay, look, you've been in there for like 20 minutes. You know, it's 90 degrees outside. Go ahead and change your bottles, but report to rehab. I'm going to need you to, you know, dress down, uh, wipe your face off with some some, uh, cool towels or whatever. And then I'm going to need you to, uh, you know, hydrate and then uh, stay in rehab and I'll call you when I need you. that type of communication, you know, so that that goes to the accountability of, of uh, not only you were in the building, you're out of the building, this is where you're going to be, and hey, this is what I need you to, to, to be doing. Um, and I'll call you again if I need you. Or it can be just one of those, hey, look, uh, I need you to come out, hydrate real quick, change your cylinders out, I need you to go right back into work because we're short on manpower or whatever it is. But it all goes back to that that communication. It also goes back to that that battalion chief or the incident commander, you know, making that decision is, hey, can I work my guys a little harder um, because we just need to do a little bit more of a push and we'll have this, uh, you know, fire knocked and then we can go ahead and move into, uh, you know, salvage and overhaul phase or, or whatever. But uh, definitely uh, that communication on the fire ground uh, back to the incident commander. So, you know, not only does he know that you're coming out where you are, but that person, you may have to be replaced and then, you know, make sure that you are rehabbed. So Frank, we're coming up to the, to the witching hour, as we like to say, um, I love the way that this conversation goes. I love talking about decision-making. I want to make sure that, that the firefighters out there understand that, you know, as firefighters, we want you to make decisions. We want you to get good at it. So as you move forward in your career as a technician, uh, as a lieutenant, as a captain, and then you move up into, into management as, as, a, as an incident commander, you know, in a, in a chief role, making these decisions is going to be a lot more comfortable for you. Um, you're going to make mistakes along the way. And remember that, you know, you use them as, as learning tools. So when you move forward, you're not going to make those same mistakes again. Like they used to say, you follow it up in your Rolodex in your head. So when you come across this incident again, hey, I did this the last time it didn't work. This is what I did and it did work. That allows you to make those decisions. It also allows you to be able to have that crit- those critical thinking skills so you can to, to make decisions on the fly, change up if it's not working instead of having to bring everybody back to a tactical retreat, have to meet with everybody face-to-face and then put them back in the building. We should be able to make these decisions on the fly and put people where we need them. So I'm going to give you the last word, Frank, before we sign off. No, I think you're 100% absolutely right. The key is to build your people. And to point out one more issue with the fire service, about building your people and about communication is that there's a lot of mutual jealousy on the fire department that we need to stop. And I want to say this specifically because of, of Scott and how he was such a great mentor to everybody is that, you know, I always try to judge people on the fire service by, by one saying I used to say, listen, we all have different personalities, but there's plenty of people on the job that don't belong on the job that got there for whatever reason. It's just a fact. It's like no matter what fire you go to, it's always the same group of people that tend to put out the fire no matter what department it is. But we have to kind of ask ourselves this question. This person that you're talking about or you're making fun of or would that person make their wife a widow and their kids parentless or their husband a widow and their kids parentless to save you if you – tried to do if you did something stupid would they put it all on the line to try to get you out and if the answer is yes to that question then you need to get over the mutual jealousy and kind of build each other because we we can't have that in the fire service there's so many people that are really great at this job and we let personalities get in the way if that person's going to do everything to get you out when something goes wrong then that person has tremendous value and you need to find a way to work with that person and everybody's better together. And that's what Scott did. Scott built like RJ and all those guys up. It doesn't take away from you when you give credit to somebody else. It builds you up. It's, it's why when I write an article, I always write with somebody else, not only to build the other person up, but it makes the article better. You know, I, I took on this endeavor with Jeff Chandler to write an article by having Jeff there made the article 10 times better. Because we all have blind spots. And if we can all cover each other's blind spots, we're going to be that much better. And uh, I'm honored to be on your show. And, Dave, you do a great job. 
and I just, you know, keep up the great work and thank you for everything that you do for fire engineering, teaching at FDIC, and as well as uh, being a host of the radio show. I really appreciate everything you do. You guys at Capital Fire with RJ and the whole crew, you guys do great work and you should be recognized for that. Well, I appreciate the uh, the accolades, uh, Frank, and, and again, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. You bring not only some colorful stories with your with your uh, northern accent, uh, the people can uh, really relate to these firehouse stories, and, and I really appreciate the, the the things that you bring uh, to to my podcast as well as to our radio show. So again, Frank, I wish you all the best, and um, for everybody else out there, thanks for listening. And if you uh, have any uh, questions, any comments, or anything like that, feel free. Uh, you can uh, reach me at SideAlphaLeadership uh, at gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram and as well as Facebook and Twitter. So with that, Frank, thanks a lot for being on the show, and uh, everybody out there, be safe. Hey, Dave, thank you very much for having me. And again, going right to your decision-making is so important because I'm on my fourth my dog's starting to bark, and I'm on my fourth beer, so this is a perfect time to end it. So you have a great night. Thank you very much. Thank you.